who makes all things new. Lord, make the words of your scripture new and fresh to our hearts and our minds this morning. Make your presence with and within us by your spirit new and fresh and tangible to us this morning. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think with us through them. And take our hearts and kindle again in us the flame and passion of our first love. It's in your name, Lord Christ, that we pray. Amen. As you're being seated... For the younger listeners, or really anybody that wants them, there are sermon listening guides at the back table. I promise they are actually the correct ones this week. That has been an issue in previous weeks, but they are the right ones. So if you want to pick one of those up, feel free. I wonder this morning, how reliant are all of you on your phone to get you where you need to go? Hmm? If you're anything like the average American these days, right, you probably find yourself wondering from time to time, what did I ever do before Siri and Google were there to get me where I need to go, right? Our ever more sophisticated mapping softwares have even begun to take things like construction and real-time traffic updates into account to tell us what the fastest route to get where we want to go at any given moment might be. The wonderful thing that many people rejoice in in this fact is that these days, if you have a fully charged phone with you, you could never be lost, right? You can never get lost. Here's the thing. When it comes to our spiritual journey, I actually have to wonder if these advances in physical journeying technology are unhelpfully reshaping our expectations, It used to be that we could use the metaphor of journey to describe the spiritual life and we could immediately apprehend all sorts of implied overtones of adventure and even mystery and the unknown. But in a day and age when we have eliminated nearly all of the unknowns from our physical travel experience, I wonder if the metaphor of journey has actually lost some of its nuance for us. As we come into Acts chapter 16, continuing in our series from the book of Acts, we encounter St. Paul and his companions on a journey. And unlike putting, you know, Yellowstone or the Denver Zoo or Montrose into your phone and just following the step-by-step instructions, we see the way the journey in the first century had quite a few more complex elements to it, didn't it? We also see how journeying on a divinely appointed mission brought even greater levels of adventure and mystery and the unknown. So let's take a look at St. Paul's missionary journey to Macedonia in Acts chapter 16. And let's learn from it about our own spiritual journeys following Jesus as we seek to take his gospel presence into the gospel-deficient areas to which he calls each of us. Again, from our contemporary experience of being guided by Siri on our road trips, it would be easy to gloss over the first part of this account 
and think, well, sure, Paul and his companions just, you know, had to follow the divine Google Maps directions and they ended up in Macedonia. But appreciate that the Lord's direction did not come all that clear. And it certainly didn't come right away. In fact, clarity about the destination didn't come until Jesus prevented them from going to the places that he didn't want them to go. We read, beginning in verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Don't go there. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Don't go there. This says something to us about the interplay, the balance between strategy and sensitivity to the Spirit of God in the ministry of St. Paul and his companions. Paul had a plan, and it was a good plan. It was likely to make for Ephesus, which was the center of these regions mentioned in Asia Minor, what is present-day Turkey. Ephesus would be a highly strategic population center for the gospel. It was a center of trade, a crossroads, really, between Asia and Europe. What we know from the rest of the story is that Paul will get there eventually. In fact, he'll enjoy a three-year highly fruitful ministry in Ephesus. But rather than allowing Paul to go for that center directly, the Lord has another plan in mind. He'll actually send him through all of these population centers that actually circle around Ephesus before allowing him to go into that center. As such, the Lord's strategy will bear more fruit than if Paul had had his way and gotten there directly. And that's an important reminder for all of us as we seek to follow Jesus and honor him first and foremost in our lives. There is nothing wrong with having plans. There's nothing wrong with having hopes, dreams, desires, and goals for our lives. But we need to maintain the perspective and the commitment to openness in allowing the Lord to shape those plans and desires. Sometimes it may feel as though he's thwarting our plans. We aren't told how Paul and Silas handled being forbidden by the Spirit and not allowed by Jesus to go to the places they keep trying to get to. I'll be completely honest, I'm not sure that I would handle that altogether well. I get pretty easily frustrated when my plans and my intentions get thwarted. But the Lord had Paul and Silas's best in mind. He had his purpose and his designs for their ministry in his leading and guiding them. And it's the same for every follower of Jesus. When it feels like every door is closing in your face, you're being faced with a choice. We can get frustrated and keep pushing and kicking against the goads. As, Paul was said, uh, as Jesus said to Paul one time earlier. Or we can take a step back and ask, Lord, is this you? What are you saying? What are you doing in these closed doors? Because in the story of Paul and Silas, it's not until after he makes clear to these guys where he doesn't want them to go 
that the Lord eventually reveals what His plan, in fact, for them is. As we read in verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Finally, the plan becomes clear. In 500 feet, turn left. Paul receives his spirit-inspired vision of a man urging him, come and help us. And I love the way that Luke sort of understates the outcome. Immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You think? I mean, I think that's a pretty reasonable conclusion. I can't seem to go anywhere else, and we just got a divine invitation to get there. I think maybe God's calling us to go to Macedonia. It seems comical, but isn't that so often the place that we find ourselves in the journey of following Jesus? I keep finding out what I guess I can't and I won't be doing. And finally, something clicks or connects. The Lord sends his invitation. Now, it's not usually in the form of a night vision, at least in my personal experience, it hasn't been. But the Lord does send something, whether it's a scripture or a strategic conversation or a Christian book, or an insight, even from a great work of literature. And it's like the light goes on. Oh, maybe this is what the Lord's doing. I think I can draw a conclusion now. This is what the Lord is inviting me into. This very much parallels the process that brought Sarah and I to northern Colorado 15 years ago. Because frankly, coming here and planting a church in Fort Collins, Colorado was never even on my radar at any point as I began pursuing God's vocational call on my life. In college, when we first met, our original vision was to go and try to plant a church among one of the most unreached people groups in southern Sudan. Mostly because we were Wheaton College students and we thought, what's the hardest thing we could possibly do for Jesus? Let's do that. (laughs) But through various ways and means, the Lord made it clear that while that might have been our seemingly strategic idea, that was not his plan for us. Then I began to feel a a sense to call, a, a, a sense and a call to work in and through the local church. We thought perhaps we were still called to Africa but maybe in a role of supporting the local church and training up local church leaders. But then the Lord made it clear that that wasn't what he had in mind for us either due to some very specific circumstances. Okay. So after seminary, I had a couple of interviews with some parishes out east. And it was clear (laughs) from visiting those places, this is not the place that Jesus is calling me to. What wasn't clear at any of those points is what God was calling us to. And yet all of that prepared the way for me to receive a phone call one day from a priest here in Colorado who had a vision, and helpfully a grant, to hire an assistant priest to plant a church in Fort Collins. And by the time we came out here 
to interview, we went home concluding that the Lord was calling us to preach the gospel here. The journey of following Jesus does not read like the directions on your phone's map software. Often the Lord repeatedly shows us where we aren't heading before he finally makes clear to us where he does intend for us to go. Just as we read about the literal journey of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Well, as Luke's narrative continues, we see the incredible fruit that comes from Paul and Silas's obedience to the call. First, we're introduced to Lydia. We read in verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, interestingly enough, here in Macedonia, where Paul was called after being thwarted in all of his attempts to get into Asia, his first European convert is a woman who had emigrated there from, wait for it, Asia. This woman, Lydia, came from the very region Paul had been trying to reach. Again, something becomes clear. The Lord is actually paving the way for a successful gospel ministry in Ephesus by bringing someone to faith whose trade would allow her to leverage her network to make the way much clearer for Paul as he enters into that region. Yes, Paul, it is part of my plan for you to eventually preach in Ephesus, but you need some help getting there. Go to Philippi first. I know a lady. But let's not lose sight of the significance of what Lydia herself represents as well. She is not just a strategic means to an end, Far from it, because Lydia actually symbolically represents God's valuing and care of all people. The first European convert is an immigrant woman. Take that in for a minute. Think on that for a minute. Now, I'm not trying to make things political I'm just drawing out the reality of the details, friends. The first Christian convert in Europe was an immigrant woman. What is more, she is a free and economically independent woman, which was not completely unheard of in the ancient world, but as you might infer, it was pretty rare. This independent woman becomes the key figure in the first church in Europe. Friends, in this fractious age of polarizing platforms and rhetoric, believers who remain committed to the ancient truths of Scripture, frankly, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't get sucked in by certain political agendas which, when examined closely 
don't necessarily fit our biblical values much better than those that we have historically aligned ourselves against. Valuing and championing those on the margins of power, minorities, immigrants, women, those with disabilities, the economically disenfranchised and the unborn, these are biblical values. And we have to be very careful not to elevate any one of them to the diminution of any of the others. Conservatives champion the unborn and liberals champion the minority, and both are right. And in other areas, both are very wrong. Because the scriptures challenge all of us on certain points. And if they don't, frankly, we're not paying attention to the details. And that's Lydia, a strategic mover in God's plan and a symbolic figure reminding us that God's agenda isn't always the same as ours. So be careful what agenda you adopt. Second, we meet a slave girl. Luke writes in verse 16, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. This is one of my favorite verses in this text. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, (laughs) turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. The primary force of the scene is not Paul getting annoyed, though, as I say, I find that very humorous as well as reassuring. It isn't even the way that the gospel of Christ confronts the power structures of the world and delivers a vulnerable girl from exploitation, though we should never lose sight of that fact either. But the primary force is the reality that the same power that Jesus used to proclaim His authority over leprosy, like what we heard in the gospel reading this morning, over all things visible and invisible, including demonic spirits. That is the same power that Paul draws on and proclaims just through the very invocation of the name of Jesus. As we talked about last week, taking Christ's gospel presence into gospel-deficient areas includes seeing clear demonstrations of the Spirit's power. But the secondary force of this scene is what follows it in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates... They said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What a gross miscarriage of justice. These men were exploiting this girl. Paul 
and Silas deliver her from the source of that exploitation. And then they are ramrodded through a justice system that doesn't even take the time to investigate the case. The magistrates just listen to the plaintiffs and the crowd and choose to make a sort of a swift and decisive show of power, an example of them. They're stripped, they're beaten with rods and thrown into the stocks. And Roman stocks, by the way, were designed to be as uncomfortable as possible. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been in Paul and Silas's shoes, I think I would have had some serious words with the Lord at that point. I have suffered much less severe things in my life, and I know I have had some pretty whiny words with the Lord about them. You know, we tried for all we were worth to go to Asia. You told us to come over here to Macedonia, and we obeyed you. We're here following you, Jesus. We're doing what you told us. We've been faithful in proclaiming your gospel in word and deed, and this is how we're treated for it? Couldn't you have protected us? Couldn't you have given us, you know, favor with the magistrates? Instead, we've been stripped beaten with a thick bundle of rods, and now we're put in the stocks. Lord, what is happening to us? That would be my whiny response. But it is not Paul and Silas's. We read on. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Tertullian would write to persecuted believers about 150 years after this. And he would say, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. And that truly unlocks our understanding of how Paul and Silas could face these setbacks to understate them. Not with a whiny plea to heaven, but with prayer and even with praises. Whether they were traveling along their intended route or taking what felt like a detour. Whether they were experiencing the joy of witnessing Lydia and her family baptized and coming to faith. Or being harassed by an evil spirit. Whether they were treated justly or unjustly, even here in the middle of prison, it did not matter. Because wherever they were, their hearts and their minds were with Jesus. And Jesus was with them. Brothers and sisters, that right there is the heart of the journey. That is the heart of ongoing transformation and discipleship. And that's worth far more than clearer directions with real-time traffic updates along the journey of becoming what God intends us to be. What would it look like in my life if I tried at all times to fix my heart with and on the Lord Jesus? What would it mean to face even the most challenging of circumstances, the most challenging of people, the darkest nights of fear and doubt? What would it mean to walk into the midst of them with my heart fixed in heaven? This is what we pray in one of my favorite Sunday collects. It says, Almighty God, grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise 
that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Friends, this has been my life's pursuit as I have pressed deeper and deeper into the prayer traditions that center on what one brother Lawrence called the practice of the presence of God. Seeking to continually pray and meditate on the name of Jesus so that practicing his presence, we can be anywhere and know where we are doesn't matter because our heart is in the presence of Jesus. What is happening to me doesn't matter because I am with him and he is with me. I still stink at it. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not claiming some spiritual superiority, but that is my great pursuit. To be so fixed on Jesus that even if our legs are in stocks, our hearts don't care because they are in heaven. In the case of Paul and Silas, of course, out of this settled peace and heavenly fixedness, more fruit is born in Philippi with the familiar story of the conversion of the jailer and his family. And the church in Philippi is soundly established. We've got now Lydia and her household, this jailer and his household, and the church is built on a rock foundation. And it's a church to which Paul will write years later and say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are not platitudes to put on Christian greeting cards or posters or to be made into catchy cannons and rounds. Not for St. Paul. The founding of the church in Philippi was a testimony to the reality, the real possibility of a life lived in this way. Rejoicing at all times in the Lord, knowing that the Lord is near, the Lord is at hand. Not being anxious, but facing all things with prayer and thanksgiving and knowing an all-surpassing peace that surpasses human understanding to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, on the journey of life, sometimes we are tempted to despair at those age-old words of would-be wisdom. Wherever you are, you take yourself with you. Right, But the gospel reality, the very thing we see illustrated throughout this account of Paul and his companions, is that wherever we go, we take the presence of the risen Christ Jesus with us as well. He is with us to lead and to guide and to shape the direction of that journey. And that is far more reassuring than having constant access to Google. And when our hearts are fixed with and in Him, we too can see and know what Paul and Silas knew. It is possible to experience true joy and peace 
whatever the circumstances of that journey. Please pray with me. Gracious Lord, it is easy to say, but without the grace of your presence, by your spirit, it is impossible to do. Lord, as we, as your people, commit ourselves again to the journey of becoming, to following where you lead us, Lord, send us the grace to hear and to receive your direction. But above all, give us the grace to know your presence. To fix our hearts with you, moment by moment. As you lead us and guide us. As you love us. And pour out your grace lavishly upon us. And so, Lord, it's to you we commit ourselves. Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.